Right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 72 of Get Out A Wrap. And today I'm joined by Gary Gormley, who is the founder, you were saying janitor, HR, training, head of ops. Dog's body, everything. <laughs> founder of Fab Solutions and also the Contact Centre um, Network. I think this is a podcast and you're, you're definitely a person, Gary. It's this long overdue, isn't it? We've been... Yeah, definitely. Should have done this sooner, but here we are. So um, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the show today. And thank you very much for having me. Good um, to be here. It, it is. And we're both, for, the, for those watching on YouTube and for those listening, we're both red-faced after a very hot weekend. <laughs> I think the only thing that uh, tans really is my nose. So it's like, because <laughs> it like sticks out more than any other item. It's like literally bright red. <laughs> Um, what I'm really interested in, um, I, we can all see on LinkedIn your passion for contact centres and um, your knowledge. Where, how has that been born? What's the, where have you worked? What's the journey that you've been on that's got you here today? Do you know what that's that's a long journey that martin i don't think your you, your podcast we can do that. this in like three sections <laughs> three days you know what i actually stumbled into contact centers by accident through some poor career choices i would say is probably the one um i started life as a as a mcdonald's alumni uh, or i am a mcdonald's alumni i started out in the university of uh, mcdonald's and I think that teaches you a hell of a lot about customer service, mm -hmm. about operations, about leadership, about training. Um, and it's more than people think. It's more than just flipping burgers and spotty teenagers. It's actually, it's a real um, hotbed for, mm -hmm. for development in people and things like that. So that's where I, I started life out. And I made a, a tragic accident, say accident, it kind of led me to where I am. So it's not that much of an accident. But I, I made a career mistake of thinking I could go and work in the retail grocery section. Um, and I took a, a slight career change and went into QuickSave on a, on a management development fast track program, which was the worst decision of my life. <laughs> um, and it made me realize I really don't like that sector. Um, and it wasn't one for me and the company wasn't necessarily um, the one that I wanted to be with. So. I thought, right, do I want to go back to, do you want to take a, a backward step into McDonald's? And I, I did that for a time, um, but I got on the jobs boards and I was like, right, where can I work? And then I found an opportunity through a recruitment company to work for a Boopa Healthcare. Um, and Boopa is an amazing organization to work with. Uh, and I started on the ladder there as a contact center agent. Um, and because of the nature of contact centers and because of the, the, the ambition that I had, I was like, and the bills I needed to pay, by the way. Yeah. Like, right. How do I uh, how do I make this a uh, a fast track into something that is a career? And then what? 17, 16, 17 years later, um, I was running departments and kind of getting stuck in the the thick end of it and banging my head against brick walls about quality assurance and greater service, like all operational leaders do. Um, and I got into um a position where I was looking at tender documents for sales training, capability providers, service training. And that kind of over, over time, I suppose, percolates in your brain. And you think you see consultants come into the contact center, you see 
different providers come into the contact center and you see some of it landing, some of it not landing. And you think with your experience, you think, God, do you know what? I reckon I could do this. I could do this myself and I could probably do a better job. Um, and then you don't do anything with it because you're comfortable and a nice paid salary with a nice comfortable job. And just over time, I started having more and more conversations with myself and with other friends and like, well, why do you do it? Uh, and I got to a position where I was in a position where I could safely and securely um, set up my own business that meant I could go and create fab solutions and call me mad and insane. <laughs> but yeah, that was nearly three years ago. So I put all my experience in contact centers as opposed to good use. And I, I, I did it with a very clear intention is that I wanted to help contact centers. I wanted to help operational leaders balance those spinning plates um, improve their customer experience. And I, and I think customer experience has kind of grown over the course of the last three years. I, I initially started thinking, right, actually, I want to help them deliver great service. I want to help them improve the sales capabilities. I want to help them coach more effectively. Um, and the, the kind of the offering, I suppose, has, has grown as, um, as the, the needs and demands of, of operational leaders has grown. So now I help contact centers through looking at people, process, leadership, and technology kind of help them deliver um, great customer experiences. So that's that's the mission anyway. <laughs> is, what, is that checkered enough? Is that potted well, enough? Well, I, do you know what? Let's go right back to that. Um, it's very similar to mine, and I'm sure it's very similar to a lot of listeners. If you think about that Gary that entered Bupa as a contact centre agent, right? So you're ambitious, but you're, you, you have practical needs, right? You, you've got to... You've got to pay some bills and same as me i was living in london no job i had to pay rent go in as an agent but instantly become aware of hey this this is a great environment if you're ambitious why is it do you think even today there's still the the external perception of contact centers you, you, the way you describe that yeah so you can progress in a career and you can you've got so many different routes in a contact center to go into like me i ended up in um like you rather like i ended up in operations and like you say no two days were the same you'd be managing your team but then you'd be looking at uh, like you say training providers regulatory stuff it was so varied and brilliant why do we why as an industry do we still have externally a kind of a bit of a negative perception why don't people see it as a career choice you know what? It's really, it's really interesting because the the vision for Fab, the mission and vision. Uh, so if we start with the mission, the mission is to change customers' perceptions about contact centres through delivering great customer experiences. And I think that the part of that is in there in that people have a negative perception of of call centres and contact centres because of the experience that they have with the people or the or the service yeah. that is being provided. Um, and I don't think they necessarily understand everything that a contact center agent has to do to deliver that experience. And sure enough, there'll be people out there that are just in it for it to pay the bills and to get a job. And they're not necessarily delivering great customer service or great experiences. But there are an awful lot of people that are invested in the contact center and actually do shed loads to keep that kind of plate spinning. So you don't know as a customer that they're logging on to about eight different systems. You don't know that they've got 
a wall board in front of them flashing with about 100 calls in queue. And they've got maybe a manager peering over the shoulder saying, why are you in rap? Get out of rap. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a lot of pressure that they have to balance. And I don't think people understand that challenge. And I don't really think they ever will unless they've worked in a contact centre. And I think they just judge it by how long they have to wait, how well they were serviced when they, they actually spoke to you, and their overall experience. And quite often that's a negative one because I think fundamentally we still haven't necessarily got it right all of the time. So even before yeah. COVID, I was sat there speaking to energy suppliers, waiting for an hour on the phone, and that just ticks customers off. So until we, we get a real good balance on what customer experience it is that we want to deliver for our customers, I think sometimes there will still be that negative connotation that, oh, it's, actually, it's, it's because they're, they're sat there talking to the mate and not answering the phone, rather than understanding the true nature of contact centres, which is they work bloody hard. Mm. It's a really, really good point, because we're in the industry, and as you mentioned then, you think about the last interactions, they're still pretty much not brilliant. Um, but again, that, yeah, you're right, that isn't down to the agent because we know, don't we, that people, the vast majority, 90% plus, want to do a good job, want to provide a great level of, of service. And um, it's everyone else's role to put them in that position that they're able to, they're able to do it. I mean, don't get me wrong, I've done enough investigate disciplinary investigations for call avoidance and all sorts of things to know that there is that segment of people that will just try and push the look but like you say 90 95 of people are actually there to do a good job um, what you mean the phone cut off just before my lunch break yeah what are the, what are the chances of that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you go but i mean you will be found out you mean how many times did i dial my own mobile number just to, to raise the number of outbound dials that i was targeted to do I've seen, we've seen it all. So I think there will be that proportion of people, but vast majority of people that I've worked with in the contact center are all really, they are customer focused. They're trying to do a great job uh, for customers and their colleagues at the same time, because they know if they don't pull the weight, Slack just flows over onto everybody else. So it's just a shame that there is still that kind of perception out there. Cause I think there still is that perception that, oh, every time I need to ring a contact and a big deep sigh, I'm going to be on the phone for ages. What would you say to people, um, and we there's a myriad of demographics and people that listen, um, that want to progress the same way you have? What what advice would you share? Was it in it was it was it easy? You're knowledgeable, you're confident. You know what? It was I found my transition through the contact center world fairly easy because I think I was very focused on what I wanted. I was like, right, there was, I suppose there was the need to kind of build up that salary again and get the base to where it needed to be. But actually, I was like, right, this looking around and seeing all the different people doing all the different jobs and actually with a lot of internal promotion, it actually gives you that ability to think, right, actually, I could be doing something. I mean, I said when I first started, oh, I want to get into HR. Um, so use the contact center as a route to do that. But actually in working with people and becoming a a people leader and an operational leader, you're kind of working in HR anyway. You don't need to go and work in HR. Yeah. So there was that thing to say, right, actually, I just want to be, I want to develop my career. So I'm, I was a people manager and then I wanted to be a manager of managers and I wanted to run my own department. 
and I wanted to get stuck into strategy and transformation. And I think if you, I think if you know what you want, um, and you work hard initially, and you get that grounding initially, then you can start to open doors through developing your own successes, and then talking to people who you've seen do different pathways and different kind of career trajectories that are similar to yours can help you get that mentor it can help you kind of think about well what did you do how did you do it I mean I think I always say there's an element of luck in it because I I kind of never I always suffer from that imposter syndrome thing so it couldn't have been me that did that it must have been luck but um you, you you if you work hard and you're focused and you um and you you keep a clear lens on on what it is that you want there's loads of opportunity. And I think for the people that you always hear, it's like, well, I'm never going to get it because that person's, my face doesn't fit and that person's face does. I'm like, that is 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 rubbish in my view. Yeah. It's like, mm. you, you, that's a defeatist attitude. And actually that's the limiting belief that's going to stop you getting it, not the fact that that person's face fit. Because in an interview, everybody's got the same opportunity. You've just got to showcase your experience and your talents and showcase everything that you've done. And I think that's the bit that I did is I said, right, I want to get involved in that. I want to get involved in that. How can I get involved in that? Um, so I was very proactive in, in trying to advance myself. I love that. It's kind of like being a positive pain in the bum, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I am a pain in the bum naturally. <laughs> what type of I'm leader? Curious. <laughs> what type of leader were you or are oh, you? Speak to me, you'd probably say awful. <laughs> no. Um, no me, right I actually, <laughs> yeah, he was, he was all right. Um, my, I always, fr- from my leadership style, is I will always take everything on the chin. It always, it stops with me, essentially. So I actually, I try and make sure that, it's, I'm going to make the analogy to Gareth Southgate. Okay, it's nice, very, very topical. Yeah, it kind of made me think actually. Say so, right, actually, his style very much aligns to my style of, of leadership. Say so, right, actually, we're all in this together. How can we make everybody's life easier? How can we make sure that we deliver the best possible outcome with the towards the right goal that we've got in mind? So it is very inclusive. Um, my style of management, I would say, my style of leadership is to say right, this is the problem. How do we fix it? Let's get everybody's ideas. No idea is a bad idea. Let's think about what it is that we want to achieve. Let's think about what the problem is and let's work the problem. Um, rather than I think sometimes it's easier to say, it's, I can't influence that problem. It's somebody else. It's, it's I can only do so much. So I, I like that whole circles of influence, circles of concern. Um, how do we make it, how do we, how do we make it so that we can, we can actually do something here rather than it being somebody else's problem. So it's probably, um, I would say describe an inclusive um, thought leadership style approach to management that's more in that kind of servant leadership style than yeah nice do this do that do the other so otherwise yeah. you just you don't get buy-in you don't get engagement and I think that's where that whole loyalty piece comes in is people then want to work for you um, and feel more invested in in working in your area um, and therefore like to stay in that area so your your attrition uh reduces although attrition is always a, a problem in the in the contact center world um so yeah that's how i describe it It'd be interesting to see <laughs> any of my team on my former team will listen to this it has no style at all loads, loads of comments this is nonsense <laughs> um 
it's interesting, isn't it? I saw you mentioned attrition there, and sometimes I think we shouldn't necessarily shy away from that. It doesn't always have to be. Um, obviously, there's positive attrition, but also someone that comes into the contact centre world and it makes up part of their career life, even if they go on to do something else. I saw a great post the other day about how someone, rather than shy away from it and kind of say, oh, I used to work in a call centre, was very proud of it and was able to list, you know what, it taught me perseverance, resilience, you know, undiluted customer care. You know, you have that customer and you're having a conversation there's no fudging it in call center. I know, yeah, that we talked about some of the things that people do now and again, but, uh, and this person said, I'm proud of the fact that part of my early career was working in a, in a call center. It taught me so much. And I think those are the kind of stories that we should, we should highlight, you know? Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think it, it builds so many transferable skills. Yeah. Um, and even just, Problem solving for me is, is a great one to say, right, yeah. actually, we've got a flood of calls coming in because of X reason. Why are they coming in? What can we do about it? And it, it, it just pulls everybody together. There's such a good sense of community um, when you're facing a problem. And I remember kind of being in board meetings with some of my colleagues and getting a thousand calls coming in. And I'm like, so what have we done? How have we done? And you're sharing your experience and you're saying, right, can we do it and can we help or can we take any overflow call? And it, it tends to, it, you start to build this sense of community, sense of family. And it does feel um, very family oriented when you're, when you're in it and when you're working in a, in a good environment um, because every, you want everybody to do well. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like, you don't, you're, you're sat there on a 90% greater service. There's no point in you sitting there on a 90% greater service. If someone's in there in the single, single figures, yeah. like it's a problem. I love it. I can, it's great. I, can, I was working as an out, in an outsourcer and walking into my team of about 10 team leaders and saying, we've got a new client. It's a big bank, um, which is great. And everyone was like, yeah, this is brilliant. What are we going to be doing? And we talked about what we would be doing for them. But we can't hire anyone. We're going to have to make it work. We can't drop any. We can't lower the priority of any of the other clients. And that, like you say, that that problem solving and having a group of people where no one went, oh, this is bollocks. What, how, we, <laughs> we, you know, we can't do this. Everyone straight away was going, right, can we use the night shift? How can we do this? How do we use the IVR? Everyone's instantly going into solution mode. And I think that kind of, you have to have that in contact centers, yeah. don't you? I think especially in an outsourcer. I mean, outsourcers it is literally every penny counts doesn't it so it's yeah. like right so how do we do this on with sticky back plastic and um but you you make it work mm. and and i think there's there's an argument to say actually sometimes you really do need to push back and say right in order yeah. to deliver the experience we need we need investment in either this piece of tech or actually we could do with some more fte so how do we build the business case for that but it's easily built because of the way that contact centers are constructed you can attach ROI to lots of different things. So where it's required, you can build it. But at the same time, there are so many ways that you can skin a cat to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And it is things like, right, so how is the AHT configured? Or how do we change shift patterns? Or how do we do more intelligent routing with the calls? Or how do we change the IVR options so we can get all the kind of different 
failure demand moving to a different or how do we self-serve and create FAQs on the website so that we can reduce demand and all sorts of things. So it, it is literally, you get some bright sparks in a room yeah. and they'll fix it for you. You don't, yeah. need, you don't need sometimes to bring in consultants like me or your, your KPMGs of the world because they'll actually probably come up with the same answer just three times more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> um, fast forwarding now to where you are now and you've, you know, you've been a business owner for nearly three years, right? So uh, expansive question, this one, but what, what have you learned? What's the kind of key thing that you've, that maybe that has surprised you? Yeah, you know, the, the, f- <laughs> the first six months I thought, yeah, you know what, I'll do this. I'll put it on LinkedIn. I'll say that. I'll get the website up and running. And yeah, everybody will flock in. They don't. <laughs> it's is that you yeah. have to actually actively go out and source customers. Um, so I think that's the first thing is, you, again, and this is the good thing about working in contact centers because you take all those skills that you kind of, when you sat there doing your three-year plan, your goal setting, your objection, you think, right, actually, okay. So let's go back to contact center 101 let's create the vision create the mission create the audience create the the kind of the the three-year plan let's create the house model what are my pillars that i want to be famous for and you start to strategize in my four walls um and think about how how you can help people in contact centers and i think that was the the thing that i learned the most is to say right actually let's think about what the problems are that i faced as a as an operational leader how i can help um, and what solutions that I can create um, that fix some of those problems. And I think that's where it lended itself to, right, actually what we want to do is fix the customer experience, but we've got four ways that we can do that in terms of people training, leadership and development, because we know that people aren't always trained to the, the right degree that they should be. So they then cut corners or they, they don't do things right or they don't have the right access to knowledge. And what that then means is the leaders have a more challenging conversation when it comes to coaching, mentoring, developing, performance conversations. And then, you know, you've got over this side, all those clunky processes, all those manual workarounds that drive complaints, that drive poor greater service, that drive all sorts of other issues that take the leader away from doing what they should be doing, which is coaching and developing the staff. So they're actually over here busy dealing with all the complaints that that's born. So actually, if we fix some of the processes, we free up time and capacity for the team leaders to invest in the people, which drives the positive customer experience. But at the same time, we then need to look at technology and how technology can help support processes, help support the people and drive that customer experience. So what are the QA systems that you've got? What are the knowledge management tools that you've got? Have you got omni-channel technology in the, in the system to help reduce demand by creating more channels? Have you got the right kind of CRM that kind of supports the conversation to give you that golden record so you're not having to repeat yourself? So that's where it kind of comes into, into play with all those kind of four quadrants. And I don't deliver all that. I, I don't know everything from... Come on. Yes, you do. Things, but <laughs> you can partner with the right people and help bring yeah. things together. And I think that's the big thing as, as well as this loads of people out there that have got the right technology that can help support it. But sometimes because you've got the head in the sand doing the do, you don't see it and you don't get that chance to head above the parapet and say, right, is there a better knowledge management system out there that can help us reduce first call resolution through or increase first call resolution through having access to things whilst we're now in a remote environment? Um, Because you've not got Bob next door to kind of tap on the shoulder and say, 
what was the answer to that that we had in the comments pack last week? I mean, yeah, it's like, so you, you kind of create all that stuff. And I think that for me is the, is the, is the bit that, the bit that I enjoy the most. And we, when we were talking about um, different things we could talk about in the same way as that very first younger versions of you and me when you stood in the contact centre going, wow, there's loads here, there's loads. I could get involved in finance, HR, training. So we had loads of different topics. The one that um, we both wanted to start with was building loyalty in customers and colleagues. What intrigued me about that was the concept of kind of joining the two, uh, especially with colleagues. What did you mean by kind of building loyalty in, in colleagues? Loyalty so, to So I think or... there is... Um, so when I think about loyalty as an employee, um, and I think of loyalty as a customer... Um, I think there is one fundamental word that probably underpins both of those that fosters a feeling of loyalty. And I, I think that's trust. I think it's actually, if I, um, if I trust you as an organisation, uh, if I trust you as a, a leader, I'm more likely to be committed to you um, as an organisation. I'm more likely to work harder, better, faster, smarter for you as my leader because I have a relationship with you and I feel like if I work hard, you get the rewards, we get the rewards and it all kind of comes together. And I think if you look at that in the same way for customers, if I have a trusted relationship with you as a provider, I'm more likely to stay with you. I'm more likely to stick with you. I'm more likely to be forgiving of maybe some of the uh, the things that you might do to me as a customer to a certain extent. Um, and actually that starts to breed that kind of level of, um, of opportunity because I trust you. I'm more likely to buy more things from you. Um, if I'm a, if I'm a trusted employee, I'm more likely to stay longer with you as a, as an employee. So I think it's, it's, it's how do you build trust um, within both of those pools um, to help achieve your organisational objectives, which is to have really happy and engaged staff, really happy and engaged staff, give more discretionary effort, so deliver great outcomes for customers. And I think they're, they're interdependent. Um, and I think if we can build trust and loyalty within employees and customers, we're going to have a really good outcome for both employees and customers. So I think it's a really interesting concept to debate which is why I thought it'd be a good one Marcus yeah definitely especially if I think about colleagues the extent that communication plays then in building that um that loyalty because I'm just thinking about both personally and for people that worked for me the nature of our industry especially in some big cities is companies would come and go especially in the outsourcing world so people joined the company where I was working at the time, I would say with a low level of trust because they always thought something was about to happen because they'd suffered the trauma of working somewhere where all of us, everything's fine one day, next day you're being told, sorry, no one's got a job anymore. And family, it looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. 
And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. I found that it was just clear, open, honest communication at all times, good and bad, was how you we engendered that res- restoration of trust, I guess, which is a really good point that that trust is, that's what becomes loyalty is what you're saying, right? Yeah, I'd agree. And I think the, the challenges that I've had in my career, when I look at things that created me a rod for my back was when I probably wasn't as open and clear in the communication of when the shit hits the fan. Yeah. Um, actually, you try and protect your team sometimes and you try and protect your people. And actually, that's probably the wrong way to go about it because you, you're shouldering a lot of the burden. Mm. And actually say, right, this is this is the lay of the land. Um, this is why it's happened. And this is what the, this is what the outcome is. Um, and I think sometimes when you try and disguise that for, for other things, it creates uh, it, it cr- creates a, a misbalance of trust, um, and you, you're not open. So I, I think you then cause yourself a, a problem, and then it just all folds in on itself. So I think definitely that kind of open and authentic um, and regular communication, I think, is one of the things you said there, is 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 really key. I think as well, it's conversely, especially for new leaders. I found being by saying I don't know a lot of the time I found like that that helped build trust with my with my team so that you're not infallible it you know don't get me wrong it wasn't like all of the time I don't, I don't know I don't know but um saying I, I don't know the answer let's help build it together or let's find out more but I think especially if you're a new leader you you shy away from that because you think it undermines your authority when actually the reverse is true well, let's, let's look at what happens in, in contact centres with new leaders. Um, is you, you, you are generally, and this is a really good thing, but it can work negatively at the same time, is you are promoted from within, aren't you? So you're yeah. promoted because you're brilliant at your job. Um, you're either the best salesperson or you're the best person to handle a complaint or you understand all the processes. And we think, great, let's give you a job as a team leader. Um, so you're promoted at the pinnacle of your your role at that time and then all of a sudden you are now back on the lower run but you've got this elevated status that you're transitioning from mm. from one to the other so in your own mind psychologically you're you're at a disadvantage because you think god last week i used to be great at this and i used to do all this stuff and now you've got this whole conscious incompetence of all of this extra stuff that you've now got to learn so there's a real dilemma for new leaders in that they've gone from being king of the walk to now I'm supposed to know everything and everybody has an expectation of me wrongly so sometimes that I should know everything um so you build you build yourself up into this weird position where you think all right I, I need to and it just it creates stress where it's unnecessary and I think that's where we need to invest more in new leaders with the right levels of um leadership induction and things like that to kind of really help them make that adjustment because sometimes it's a we bestow on you team leader title go and do it and they, they then don't get invested and you wonder why some of them then think god what on earth have i done <laughs> i love that 
I, I love that. I've never really thought of it that way. I've thought, I've, we've obviously talked about the magic weekend before your agent Friday, team leader uh, Monday, and suddenly you're meant to have developed all these skills as to how you lead 15 other people over a magic weekend. But I love, I love thinking about it that you are absolutely at your pinnacle, as you say, to then going, how do I lead 15 to 20 other humans how do I galvanize them organize them motivate them coach them yes you'll get support yes you'll get training to do that but it is a shock isn't it yeah totally I mean the the first time I was promoted to team leader status it was like like all of it I was giddy as a kipper and I, <laughs> I wanted all of my team together um and I designed the first thing any team leader does Guaranteed, ask any of them. They designed a whole new floor plan. Like, where do I want all my people to sit? That's probably the number one thing that a new team leader does. And I completely underestimated how sensitive people were to desk moves, yeah. to the people they were working with. And I had tears and all sorts because I'm like, I don't want to sit there. I don't want to sit near that person. Oh, it's like, I'm like, Christ, all I want to do is my team to sit together. Um, so that was like my first, again, induction into it to say, right, actually, have you thought through the impacts of people's desk moods, people's situation, how, how they be perceived together? Like, like Christ, <laughs> give me strength. All the way I my team to sit together. But again, that's, it, again, it's a nice learning curve. And unless you go through that, or unless somebody sits down with you and said, right, what, what are the things that you might need to consider? you're going to make some of those mistakes. It's just how you kind of come out the other end of them. I, I definitely approached desk moves slightly differently after that. Oh, I, I was like you. I was a wrecking ball the first time because I wanted to do things. I wanted. I, I was felt like I was unleashed. So I just changed stuff. Said, right, we're going to change. I want, to, I want us to have a team name. I want us to have a team mission statement. And everyone was either dumbstruck or in open revolt against me so but then fast forward and actually now I would say to people that become team leaders is to start with just do nothing you know do obviously do your job but just it's more about observation questions yeah observation find out who your team are what motivates them don't run in to change things straight away because it's just unsettling definitely and if you think that whole Kubler-Ross change curve, people go through this whole big valley of despair at the thought of prospect of change. So, And again, I think that's a really important thing as part of um, a leader's first induction into it is understanding the emotions of people and understanding the, the emotional intelligence of being a leader um, to help you engineer that trust. Um, and I say engineer very purposely because actually you've got to, It's it's something that, it takes time and it takes um, specific actions to help you build. So you've got to engineer that climate, that kind of that relationship. Um, so yeah, talk, talking them through, right. These are the, these are the emotional stakes that your people are going to go through when they go through change. How are you preparing them for that? And how are you preparing yourself to have that conversation? Um, is a really important skill. <laughs> Otherwise these, like you and me <laughs> wrecking balls going. <laughs> just smashing the place up. Um, these are, um the more sort of tactical things from a strategic point of view when you were um or for for those people that oversee whole contact centers how 
where do you start when it comes to building that kind of colleague loyalty then? You know what? One of the things I used to really love analysing um, was voice of the employee data um, because it's raw and people are very comfortable putting those. I, it was the comments box. It was the verbatim comments. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And it always used to fill me with dread. And generally, there was some really good stuff in there. But there was also people cling on to some things that they said in the first wave. They say it again in the second wave. They say it again in the third wave. Um, and it's actually, that's the bit that I would say, talk to people. A bit like when we just said there, when you've got a first brand new team, is like talk and, and ask questions. I think that's the bit for me is understanding your baselines. How is things now what's the what's the acid test um if i ask somebody to go and tell me what the mission statement is or what the values are and yes sometimes they're a bit corporate and fluffy but actually they mean they mean a lot in the right context in terms of i i talk about using um value statements rather than the the, the value words so if we were to ask you to describe what does accountability mean at your level um, as, a, as an agent, what does accountability mean for your manager? What does accountability yeah. mean for your manager's manager? What are the, the types of things that they're, they're likely to be saying? And actually, if it's, a, well, my manager's manager doesn't care, but my manager cares a lot. I trust my manager. I don't trust the seniors. Um, and I've had that in my career. So people think, don't trust me. I'm like, what's the not to trust about me? <laughs> but actually, it's not that they don't trust you. It's that you're not communicating. Um, and that you're not giving people the, the information that they need in order to feel um, comfortable with, with what's going on around them. So I think the, the first thing I would say to any operation is look at that voice of your employee data um, and then look at voice of customer data because voice of customer data directly impacts um, voice of the employee because they're the people that are having to deal with complaints and the people that are having to navigate your processes and the people that are having to do all the manual workarounds. And if that stuff is, if there's similar trends in that, um, then that's stuff that maybe you can prioritize and kind of think about how that can impact your people. So I, I would, I always say, first things first is look at the landscape, look at your data um, and actually have some conversations with people. Um, there was a great, I, I always steal this from a, a chap called Harvey Gilbert, who was on the contact center network uh, event and he talked about the uh, the Airbnb approach to leadership um, and he used a phrase where what Airbnb uses is elephants dead fish and vomit so actually when you're talking to your people what are the elephants in the room what are these big things that um, we've, we've we've got to tackle because they're just taking up so much space what's the um, what's the dead fish what are the things that we thought we'd fixed but haven't <laughs> fixed and they're still stinking out of the place and what's the vomit that you just need to get off your chest? Um, and what's not working? What are the things that are kind of really causing you lots of pain that you just need to tell us about? So they do that in like a skip level fashion. Um, and it's elephants, dead fish and vomit. And it, that's always stuck with me. I, as, um, yeah. I, I like the imagery that it creates. Yeah. For one, but I think it's also a really good one to say, right, what are the really important things? What are the things that are still lingering? And actually, what's the emotive stuff that you just want to get off your chest? And I think if you give people that opportunity to unburden themselves, um, then that's really important. But I think the key part of that is then you said yeah. we did. Yeah. So you told us all this stuff. Um, this is what we can actually do. This is what we can't do. 
Um, and this is the stuff that we've done. And this so is us accepting your. This is us accepting your vomit. That's fine. Yeah. I I wonder how many. I love that. I wonder how many senior leaders um, do the same process. I can remember being a contact center manager, and we were with our senior leader when he went through the voice of the employee and our HR team had put together um, a presentation and, and actually the, um, the data, the results were, were positive. Right. But all he wanted to do is like, yeah, fine. Go take me past this. I want to see the comments. I want to go into all of the, of the comments. Some of that I think is human nature, but actually he was very inquisitive and not scared of what people were saying, you know, wanted to know. And he, he kind of taught me then at that point, it's no point because some people would go into challenging the perceptions, right. And saying, well, that's not true. Or, Oh, I know who this is. This person's just got an ax to grind. Um, He was like there, it doesn't matter. We have to do something about this. Their perception is their reality so this and it's no point just going well actually 80 percent of you are really happy so let's carry on yeah and it, it is one of those things that we talk about the, the phrase one bad apple but actually that can if, if you think about that that can be quite, sound quite negative but it's actually mm. that one voice is probably representative of quite a large view and actually if you think about the size of contact centers you can have a thousand seat contact center if 80% of you are happy, it means that 200 people aren't. And that mm. 200 people have a significant voice. Um, and whilst the, the 80% might be happy, there's probably an element of time where the stuff that the, the 20% are saying will start to eke into the feelings of the other 80%. Um, so these, I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of writing a, a, a book at the moment, Martin. And it's, uh, it's all around practical CX. So how as a contact center can you apply customer experience, but doing it practically. And there's um, an acronym that I've, I've developed called HEAT, and it stands for how employees are talking. Uh, and actually all nice. that stuff is how, how do you bring the heat into the boardroom? And I think that's the important part is say, when you look at those remaining comments, regardless of what it is, what are people saying? Because mm. how people are speaking openly will at some point reflect on how they speak to customers. Um, not always, but I think you can catch them on their off day and all of a sudden they're, they're dealing with a customer in a way that they wouldn't normally deal with, um, which then has a direct impact on that customer experience. So I think how employees are talking is a really important part to kind of really understand what, what's going on in the contact sense. And if you, if you don't have a voice of the employee program, regardless of, of what size you are, um, I think you need to then over-index on communication. You need to over-index on one-to-one skip levels and all that kind of stuff because not everybody can can afford a, 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 an all-singing, all-dancing uh, VOE program, but you can speak to people. And that's all that, mm. that is, isn't it? It's mm. just speak to people. And I that love the, itself builds the trust. I love the acronym. I love it because I've always thought, in my experience, um, the successful companies stroke contact centers are the ones that have the shortest distance between the senior leadership's view of the world and actually the, your front your frontline operatives, right? So um, ha- what's the delta? If the delta is short, you're doing something right. And a lot of that comes from, 
I'll never forget this. I uh, worked in Istanbul for a while and they're just a different way of working. Everyone smoked and literally the whole contact center would take smoke breaks at the same time. It was just like the place would empty. And we went from like a board room level meeting to everyone just disappearing out onto this, the, the road outside the contact center and hearing people talk about a strategy that had been introduced a couple of days before and just completely pulling it to, to bits and just you you saw the death of a strategy live do you know what i mean because there was no way that was going to be resurrected because people had this rightly for a lot of the reasons they were talking about but because they hadn't been involved or canvassed or involved in the um setting of the strategy it just kind of been dictated to them it disappeared and that's how they were talking and it's kind of like you know what you have to go and find that out you have to go and talk to people because ultimately stick on a, it sounds like stick on a gas mask <laughs> and go and stand in the uh, in the cigarette hall. <laughs> yeah you've got you've got to do it you've got to take one for the team um but it was uh, it, it it struck me then so much about how people can either make your strategy the best thing ever or destroy it instantly with their team you know so it's a really good point you make i love that how employees are talking heat bring the heat into the boardroom love it what about loyalty for customers then so i think that for me again when you look at that voice of customer data um again go straight to the verbatims what are your customers telling you um what are the key things that are causing them a problem and actually how often does that happen so I talk about frequency and impact in terms of how, how often is it happening and what's the, the size of that problem in terms of its impact to their experience? Not necessarily impact to your bottom line, but impact to their view on the world. Because um, I think that's the piece that then starts, uh, if it's happening time and time again, you're slicing that trust into micro segments. And every time that that happens, you lose a slice of that trust. And then that loses that loyalty, that brand advocacy, and that retention of, of that customer so it, it just all starts to all starts to crumble and i think when you think about it in terms of um loyalty programs for customers i think the biggest thing that i hear from the contact centers that i deal with is that customers they don't want you to shoot for the moon they don't want the the whole they don't they don't want like lots of new technologies and all those kind of things what they want you to do is to deliver a customer experience consistently so they're just after a, your standard customer experience, but just do it repeatedly and consistently well. Um, and I think we tie ourselves up in knots, don't we, in terms of, right, we must have this technology or we must be doing all this kind of different stuff or we must be surprising and delighting customers with lots of different levels of segmentation that kind of take us to this with this customer and this with that customer. And we need to personalize every point of the journey. But actually, generally speaking, and from my own experiences, um, if I deal with you as, a, as an organization and you fix the problem that I've got and you do that well, and then you recover that service and put me back into a position where I'm, I'm happy and I'm comfortable, that is good customer service and that will keep me loyal. Uh, and then if you surprise and delight me, I'd be even happier. Um, so you build that loyalty and you build that trust up. 
um, through that end. And I think it's it's applying the same principles that you would to your employees in that communication. Communica- communication's got to be relevant. It's got to be it's got to empower me and put me in a in a position where I can choose whether or not to speak to the contact center or I can do some self-service and that kind of helps um, create that relationship um, that oh I love I love this bank because actually I don't need to speak to them don't need to spend a load of time on the phone I can just go on an app or I can just go into the IVR and, and update something um, so I think it's it's those micro moments um, that we do well uh, that help build that loyalty and help build that trust that's really interesting how um how do we make how do we make this better then as an industry there's so much it seems like cx has evolved into its own industry you know there's it's you mentioned some some phrases there around customer happiness customer um all of these things leading to loyalty but i like the simplicity of your of your message then that it's doing doing it well and doing it consistently everything else is the cherry on the top um how do people get to that point maybe because i I wonder about some of the metrics you know for bpa quality we see some we get involved with helping people really interrogate a lot of the time the methodology of how they're understanding what their customers are saying because there is survey fatigue out there there is kind of you only get the extremities in some of the methodologies that exist how do people get an accurate representation of what their customers are saying you know there are so many different ways of getting access to that data um and i think that the the ways that we do it can almost be misleading and people listening to this might kind of crucify me for saying it is that we ask when we ask customers um, there's almost an element of anti-selection in that the people that you ask are probably more likely to give you the information. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at survey schemes and things like that, they probably survey, I'd say at best, maybe 20%, probably mm-hmm. 15% is probably represents Max, yeah. But actually, you've got a whole host of customers that you're not hearing from. And you've got a whole host of experiences that, is, that you're not surveying. So I think that the future of measurement of CX um, and customer satisfaction is that measurement of the people that you don't survey and the things that they're saying. And I think this is where tools like speech analytics can be hugely insightful um, because they're not targeted at people and responses and surveys they're targeted at the the context of what a customer is saying and the context of what an agent is saying to a customer and then you can understand the emotions that are attached to that through the phrases and the the wording that the customer uses and i think that is the uh, is is the future of understanding what your what your customer actually truly feels um, about the experience that they deliver for you not nps surveys not CES surveys, because all those things are, we're asking you to give us an opinion based on your experience at this point in time. We're actually, if you looked at a multitude of customer journeys through all the stuff that you've got in your call recordings, it can be much more insightful. But I think there's still a, 
there's still an, ele an element of people don't really understand how to use speech analytics in the best possible way to give you all that insight because it requires people to create buckets. It requires people to program the, the tool that you've got to kind of then say, right, and catalog this and summarize that. So there is, a, there is an element of graft involved in it. But I think if you spend the, the time and invest in a good quality speech analytics tool, um, I think that will give you more insight into what your customers are saying, how your agents are handling it, how well that, that then leads to the, the rest of the customer experience. Uh, and that's the, the bit that I would be saying we should, we should be looking at now, saying rather than looking at surveys and, I mean, definitely analyze complaint trends and complaint data and all that kind of stuff, and actually apply some speech analytics to that specific category. Um, but I think surveys are they're starting to eke out. I, mean, I, I think they'll still stick around because it's a it's a, a good quantitative measure of what your your customers are saying. But I think to truly get insight that is pure raw insight, that is where you should be going. That's where you should be looking. I would wholeheartedly agree, and not just because we say it at um, BPA. Actually, it, speech is great even if you don't have speech at the moment, go and speak to your QA team because they will be able to tell you how the majority, like you say, the majority of your customers are feeling or interacting the words that they're saying when they interact with you as a, as a business. And surveys, you're right. I think they will have their, they'll always have their place. You can test specific things with a survey, but I, I'm with you in that um, we have got to look at um, what the, the silent majority, how they're how they're talking about um, the companies, and and again going right back to the start, that's the that's about the perception of contact centres, right? Is I think we know that they're great places to work, but we can do better. Um, we come into the we come into the end of the hour. It's rattled by. We, we this will be the first of a few, I think, because we've got about five other topics we can. <laughs> We, uh, we and you know what, we could both talk the uh, the hind legs off a donkey. So uh, I think there's plenty <laughs> to be discussed. But what what what's the one bit of advice you've had in your career that you always think that you carry around with you that you'd want to share? You know what, I think it's um, there's been tons of of great advice that I've been given over the years, and I've been fortunate enough to work with some some really great bosses. But I, I think for me, I think. The one piece of advice that I would give, it, it boils back down to people, actually, and people are your, your greatest asset. So you really have to think about how your people are um, working, how they're speaking, what they're saying, what they're doing, um, in order for anything else to work. So I, I would always say, and I think it's, it's echoed through some of the, the, the kind of the leadership that I've had, is that put your people first. Love it. Gary Gormley of Fab Solutions and the Contact Centre Network. Thanks very much for, for joining me. I, I know we're going to do more now. It's been a, it's been a pleasure, Martin. Um, and I, I've really enjoyed it. And I think for, for me, it's it's a very, it's a great industry to work in. Um, so I think there's lots of stuff that we could talk about and lots of, can stay for hours, but yeah. We're both evangelical about this, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Gary. Lovely chat to you, Martin.